Good morning, everyone. Happy Lord's Day. Yeah, we have days like once a year where we say Merry Christmas or Happy Birthday, but every Sunday we ought to say Happy Lord's Day. This is the day that the Lord has made. It is the day that He was raised from the dead. So to me, this is a, a day we celebrate every, every week. So we're going to continue on with um, Module 4, Session 11. We got to the Doctrines of Sanctification, Union with Christ, and I've just got a couple of pages of notes on the Doctrine of Glorification. When I only have a couple of pages of notes, that's very exciting to me because it means I have flexibility. But before we get to that, I want to just encourage you, we're three or four weeks away from finishing Module 4, which is the toughest one. If you're in the middle of writing papers, I want to encourage you to, to, to get it done and um, to make that a priority. If you feel like, oh no, I'm not going to make it, or you want to start, then Module 5 is easier than Module 4. That's a good time to start. It will, um, it will lure you in to BTI, and then when you get to Module 4, you go, oh, now I know why they said don't start on Module 4. So uh, I want to encourage you to do that. We have seen over time, there's no debate about this at all, that if you do the reading, you write the papers, it, it, it greatly increases your learning. So um, that's the whole point of this. We will eventually get to the point where in BTI, you're only in here if you're doing the papers, but we're still, we're still trying to be as um, helpful as we can to everybody we can. Because just listening to this is somewhat helpful, but writing it is infinitely helpful. And when you have your own notebook with uh, theological essays you've written, you know that theology. And when you have your own notebook with uh, Bible book reviews that you've written, you know those books and you at least know where to look. So uh, I want to encourage you to do that. Um, we will look forward to more papers. So today, the doctrine of glorification. We're going to look at this, but we're going to pray first because this is a, a weighty subject and I want to uh, ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is a wondrous thing that you have given us this Lord's day. Although it's not a law, it does act in many ways like a Christian Sabbath, and um, we're, we're not legally bound to that. But it was the practice of the early church to meet on the Lord's Day. It was the practice of the early church to call Sunday the Lord's Day, to remember every single week that this was the day that the Lord Jesus Christ conquered death this was the day that death was now not an issue for the believer. This is the day that proved that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient. That the check written to you, as it were, for the price of sin cleared. And as it cleared, Jesus gloriously rose from the dead. And because of his resurrection we can look forward to our own glorification because you've promised it. You've promised that though we are in the grave, you will raise us just as you have raised Christ. And so that's our hope and that's what we'd like to focus on this morning. I pray this would be a blessing to all who are listening and especially we pray that you would be honored and you would be glorified as we endeavor to speak only that which is true, only that which is revealed in your word, to have no, no guesses, no um, possibilities, but just to look at pure truth. We pray this would be honoring to you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So the doctrine of glorification. Before we get into this, I, I want to talk about a theological tendency that I, I think is, is harmful and then one that's helpful. Theological tendency that is harmful is to have a low view of the future, a low view of Bible prophecy. I, I'm, even if, even if it uh, was a little bit more supportable theologically, which is not, I would not be a fan of amillennialism, no matter what support they had, because amillennialism basically says, it's, it's the belief that there isn't a coming kingdom of Christ um, between now and a final state, that it's just, we're in the kingdom now. There's lots of versions of amillennialism. Some say we're in the kingdom now. Some really say that the final state with new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, and all that is, is the only coming kingdom. But the, the concern I have with it 
particularly the flavor that says that the kingdom is now, it, it has a very, very low emphasis on looking to the future. That what we have right now is the most important. And, and while we want to be faithful now, the Lord calls us to obedience now, I'd like to show you in Scripture that our hope of the future is a major part of how and why we live our Christian life. It's a huge part. And, and how do you see this lived out? When you see a de-emphasis on the future reign of Christ, um, this is where believers, I, I think, become a little bit too political. They put too much stock in who the next president's going to be, uh, who the next congressman's going to be, and so forth, because they're really trying to see the kingdom come in now. They might not say they're post-millennial, that they're bringing in the kingdom before Christ returns, but that's in essence how they act. And so, uh, do we want to make our world better? Absolutely. We're here to be salt and light, but not to create a better society. We're here to be salt and light for the gospel, to bring souls into the kingdom. So, the, the harmful idea of that the kingdom is now and that we don't emphasize the future that much um, it is really not helpful to us. In fact, uh, there's, a, there's an entire uh, group that really goes to the point of saying that teaching Bible prophecy is, is not really that helpful. That we need to teach Christian living now and the gospel now. And those things are true. But they kind of, kind of poo-poo the idea of Bible prophecy. We've said this before, and somebody can yell it out, how much of the Bible, percentage-wise, or fractional, is prophecy? Anybody remember? A lot. Okay, yeah, that's the fraction. One-third. One-third of the Bible is prophetic. A lot of it is prophecy that's already been fulfilled. Why would God give us so many prophecies already fulfilled? Very simple answer. Because the ones that aren't fulfilled, we have a track record to go back and say, God is undefeated in all of his prophecies so far. So the ones that have not yet been fulfilled, we can believe them. Literally, we can take the natural meaning of those things. So that's unhelpful. On the other side, what is very, very helpful, and, and sometimes uh, we who are, are tagged with the label dispensational, I, I don't really call myself dispensational because there's so many different flavors of it. Uh, I want to know which one you're calling me. We just know what the Bible says. But people who are tagged with the label of dispensational are sometimes accused of being overly enamored with Bible prophecy. I'm enamored with Bible prophecy 33% of my Bible study. I, I, I don't know. That's about the right uh, amount because that's the amount the Bible gives. You, can't, you, you, could, you could lay your Bible down and let it fall open and almost on any page you're going to have some reference to prophecy yet to be fulfilled, prophecy that has been fulfilled, or prophecy that's being fulfilled on that page. It's everywhere. And so rather than that being something that takes our focus off of the present day, what I find is that um, looking to the future is one of the major keys to a Christian's contentment right now. I, what do you tell somebody who's going to die in a day or a week or a month? Do you say, boy, the kingdom of Christ right now is so great, isn't it? No, they get it. Because all they have is the future. And so I, I want to encourage you that when you see prophecy in the Bible and as we go through the doctrine of glorification, there is no such thing as looking to the future too much. Have you ever heard the phrase, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good? That's, that's illogical. That's absolutely illogical. What does Colossians tell us? Colossians says, in chapter 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, there's prophecy, told you any page of the Bible, then you also will appear with him, what's the last phrase, in glory. Let, let your Bible fall open. You're almost always going to find prophecy. What does Colossians 3 tells us, tell us? Look to the future. And what I've found is that when a believer does this successfully and looks so hard to the future, you know what happens in the present? Total contentment, total peace, total joy. 
because nothing that happens matters. We take the blessings, we enjoy them, we're thankful for them. I would submit, um, this is called vanilla ice cream theology. I would submit that a scoop of vanilla ice cream is much more enjoyable to the person looking definitely to the future than the one who thinks all of our happiness is here in the present. So what if you choke on that vanilla ice cream? What if you find out you're, you have a vanilla intolerance or something and you die of that? The one looking to the future can enjoy it. So I, I encourage you, I am unashamedly dispensational in the sense that we are heavy on prophecy. We are heavy on what's coming in the future. So with that, the doctrine of glorification is... To put it this way, we think about eschatology, the end times. The doctrine of glorification is your personal end times, your personal eschatology, what happens to you. And so this is pretty important for us. So let me just introduce this with a few little thoughts here. The Bible tells us that there is a future aspect of our salvation. That future aspect is called glorification. That there's coming a day when the salvation we already have, we're justified, we have been set apart, sanctified in that sense, that it will extend perfectly to our body and to our soul. That that extension will go forward and finish. Now I want to read to you kind of our classic text on the doctrine of glorification. And the English translation nails it as far as the correct tense. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, let me stop right there for a moment. The misunderstanding of the foreknowledge of God is that God knew who would choose him. God is never passive. I would defy you to find one place in all the Bible God is ever passive. He's never passive. Foreknowledge is a word that specifically means knowledge of causation, to cause something to happen. God didn't just know you were going to choose him. He knew you were going to be saved because he ordained it. Ephesians 1 is very clear about this. So keeping going, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What does that mean? It means that if you have been foreknown by God, if you were elect, you will be saved. You will come to faith in Christ and you will be conformed completely to the image of Christ. You will be perfected. You won't be left in an imperfect state. And you might think, well, that, that's never happened. It almost did. God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. And the reason within the Trinity discussion, the reason that God gave was so that Adam and Eve would not eat from the tree of life in their fallen state and remain living forever in a fallen state. And so it was gracious of him to take them out so that they would die, be resurrected in a glorified state. So it is, it is a foregone conclusion. We will be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now we immediately go to whose glory is this, this about? Your glorification is about the glorification of Christ. That he's only a king if he has subjects, Right? He's not a king over nothing, to use a double negative. It glorifies Christ because he's now the firstborn among many brothers. In verse 30, in those whom he predestined, he also called, meaning that if you've been foreknown, if you've been predestined, there will be a moment in time when God calls you to salvation. That will happen. And those whom he called, he also justified. At the moment of salvation, you are now rendered as as uh, having the imputed righteousness of Christ before God. And here's where the English version gets it exactly right. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, what does that mean? Well, the glorification aspect of salvation is in the future, but you notice what tense is it presented in Romans 8.30? In the past. You know what we call that? We call that biblical certainty that your future glorification is so certain that Paul writes it like it's already happened. That's a glorious thing. What, if you're going to be an honest Catholic, if you're a Catholic and you're really being honest, you would have to change this. And those whom he might justify, he hopefully will glorify. That's Catholic theology. Which is no coincidence that Martin Luther was saved reading the book of what? Romans. Because he saw this very, very clearly. 
So according to those two verses, Romans 8, 29, and 30, glorification is the final result. It's the end product of being foreknown, of being predestined, of being called, of being justified. And it's so certain that it is presented as past tense. By the way, glorification is it's an intersection. It's the intersection of soteriology, the study of salvation, and eschatology, the study of last things study of end times. And I told you this a second ago, glorification is the study of your end times and what's going to happen to you. And that's very, very comforting to us. It's multidimensional. Glorification is not just about you. It is about individuals, yes, but then it's about bodies of believers, the nation of Israel, uh, the church, how those two intersect, how they're different, how they're the same, how they have continuity, how they have discontinuity. So glorification is multi-layered, multi-dimensional. I want to talk to you about the hope of glorification. I've put some references up there. I'm going to read these to you because this is not a New Testament concept only. This is Old Testament too. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament present glorification as our hope. That's our goal, which is why, interestingly enough, um, you get to this doctrine, try teaching this in a charismatic church, they, they go to sleep. Or in a Pentecostal church, they go to sleep. Why? Because their theology is all about the here and now. You, you go into a Pentecostal church, I'd like to do this. It is on my bucket list to get to preach whatever I want in the Pentecostal church and they don't know what's coming. But I would love to preach on the fact that this life is horrible and the next life will be glorious. You lose them at that point because what they've been taught for decades and decades is that this life is what you get. And heaven is that ethereal thing that you think about when you're you know, 94 and you're on your last breath. Then you think about it. They don't relate to that. But the Old Testament and the New Testament say that this is our hope. This is our goal. Psalm 73, 24. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. That's, a, that's an, uh, an encapsulation of the Christian life. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Romans 8, 18, and I, I will emphasize the, uh, the New Testament, but if we have time, I'm going to come back to one of my favorite Old Testament passages on glorification. Romans eight eighteen. for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the opposite of the prosperity gospel. What's the prosperity gospel say? If you're suffering now, you don't have faith. If you're suffering now, there's something wrong with you. If you're suffering now, you're not under the blessing of God. Or the, uh, what, what we would call this uh, promised land or Jordan River theology. Promised land and Jordan River theology. Uh, see also uh, Paula White and Jesse Duplantis and all kinds of false teachers. Promised land or Jordan River theology goes back to the Old Testament and puts you in the place of Israel. And here's the basic story. I could preach this sermon from memory. The basic sermon is this. You used to be like Israel and you, you were in the wilderness. You were wandering around. You had debt and you, you had a flat tire every other day on the way to work and you had a terrible job and, and your, your husband was ugly and, and all the things that they can think of. But if by faith, which includes giving to this ministry, uh, you will believe God, then you'll cross the Jordan into the promised land and all those things will go away. That's partly true if you believe that crossing the Jordan is representative of dying, then absolutely all those things will go away because you'll have no problems at your death. But that is the opposite of what Paul says. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, meaning he has them. See also 2 Corinthians chapter 11, a list of suffering that you can't even possibly imagine having ever gone through, not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. That says how you suffer here ultimately doesn't matter and this is a key for peace for us to just smile and, and to uh, sing to yourself the final verse of amazing grace when we've been there ten thousand years bright shining as the sun we've no less days to sing god's praise than when we first begun do you, do you really think that that one day of agony that one year of agony that one decade of agony is going to even be a blip on the radar it's not going to be so the doctrine of glorification is our hope second corinthians four seventeen. Before I read this verse, I want you to put in your minds, literally, the worst thing you've ever been through in this life. Put it in there. You all have one. 
Okay. Here's what Paul says about it. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction, that's what he calls it, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What a tremendous word picture. Here's the word picture. The worst thing you've ever been through or you will go through, because probably the worst is yet to come. Isn't that good to think about? The worst thing you've ever gone through is like this light little, like fluffy, light momentary affliction. It's like a, a little slice of angel food cake, kind of fluffy and just little. But then he says the eternal weight of glory. It's like a building falling down on that one little light momentary affliction, just completely obliterating it. It makes it seem silly. I, I don't know if you have any memories when you were two or three, but back in the days when people thought vaccinations were safe, um, do you remember getting your first little shot? I remember getting one. I was four years old, and it's, it traumatizes me to this day to think about it. Now, if you're over the age of 60, you go, I've had medical procedures that makes that look like nothing, like, like that's a day in the park. Absolutely. That's what it is to have a light momentary affliction. Your perspective changes. It absolutely changes. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal, to obtain the glory of Christ, to go where he is, to be how he is. 1 Peter 5.4 When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So that's our hope. That's, that's delightful. I think in biblical counseling, if you're counseling yourself, which is very possible because we have the great counselor right here in the word of God through the spirit of God, or if you're counseling others, one of the best things you can do for them is say, you know what, let's focus on the future for a while. Let's read some Bible verses. Let's go through Psalm 73 and Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and 1 Peter 5. Let's change your perspective. And if you change your perspective, then guess what? Now you don't care as much about solving the problem because that was never the point anyway. There are phases of glorification. So let's, talk, let's get technical here. Phases of glorification. Now we've got kind of the theological basis for it. Phase one. At the believer's death, the soul departs the physical body to enter the presence of Christ in heaven. And I put some good references up there for you. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Luke 23.43, Acts 7.59, Matthew 17.3. Now I put down Matthew 17.3 um, because... That is the account of the transfiguration of Christ. Moses and Elijah. Elijah died 900 years before that. Moses died 1,400 years before that. And yet they appear with Christ in glorified form and they have physical form. They are recognizable. Peter, James, and John are there and they go, hey, look, it's Moses and Elijah. How do they know them? I don't know, but they recognize them. They are recognizable they retained the physical characteristics. They retained their gender. They retained their identity. That's what they kept. Departed believers sing praise to God in heaven. This is not metaphorical. In Romans 4, or in Revelation 4, Revelation 5, we have departed believers singing. What does it take to sing? Ah, uh, takes air, takes vocal cords, takes a mouth takes a body. So I, I'm pretty convinced that even before the resurrection, uh, we have some sort of created body with which to relate to God and to one another. It's not our permanent glorified body, not yet, but I've, I've said before that it's sort of like that rental car you get when yours is in the shop, that you have kind of a, a replacement, a, a rent-a-body, I guess. We also see in Revelation 6, pre-resurrection tribulation martyrs are wearing white robes. Now, it's very, very easy, and it's a slippery slope to say, well, that's just figurative. That's just metaphorical. There's an important rule for determining whether something's figurative or not, and that is, is it ridiculous? Is it impossible? Is, is it absurd? Is it absurd for somebody to be wearing a white robe? Not at all. So you don't automatically assume that that's somehow figurative. God intended for us to have a picture of them. So, 
your soul departs the physical body, but please don't picture heaven as it is now as some sort of ethereal, ghostly, misty existence. It is a physical place with physical things, a physical throne, a physical altar, physical trees, physical floor, a physical sky. There's all kinds of physical things in heaven, including, I think we can make a really good case, departed believers. Not in their final resurrected body, but in some sort of physical manifestation with which to relate to God and one another. So if you've ever seen heaven depicted as people sitting around in ghostly forms on clouds, that's not heaven. It's a real place. Um, all Jews believe it was a real place. First heaven, second heaven, third heaven. They, they simply took it out that far to be in a physical place beyond where we can see. That's phase one. And that happens during this era. Phase two, we would call this the rapture resurrection event. That's a, that's a name I coined because it's easier to put it all together. Rapture resurrection event is recorded in multiple places, but we'll focus on 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 for the moment. For those who have died, their spirits are united with their glorified body. That's the resurrection. And for those who were alive at the time of the rapture, they will be snatched away into the air to meet the Lord in the air. They will also be given glorified bodies. I, I remember as a child, and I've always believed in the rapture because the Bible teaches it. I remember as a child, though, not understanding uh, glorification and being really concerned about where I was going to be during the rapture. And as a 10-year-old, I, I kept telling my dad, what if I'm in the bathroom? And what if something really horrible is happening I, well, I think the Lord will take care of that. But I believe in the rapture. Our covenant theology, brothers and sisters, some will even say that there, there are no examples of the rapture in the Bible. I found seven. There's at least seven. And I don't know if I can name them all from memory, but there is, there is Enoch going up into heaven. There is Elijah being escorted by uh, chariots of fire. Um, there is Jesus himself being taken into heaven. There is in Revelation 11, the two witnesses being taken into heaven. You have uh, 1 Corinthians 15 saying that uh, believers will be taken into heaven. You have 1 Thessalonians 4 saying believers will be taken to heaven. And you have Jesus um, uh, going from uh, the town of Emmaus to an upper room in Jerusalem instantly. We might call that a sideways rapture. How many was that? Was that seven? And Philip being taken in Acts 8. There's eight. Can't tell me the rapture's not in the Bible. That's just a really cool way to be transported. And that's what the Lord will do. That's phase two. I believe that you should hope for the rapture. Every generation of Christians always has a group of people that think they're going to be in the rapture. That's partly crazy and partly perfect. How, how do we uh, endorse that? Well, I can endorse it from... Uh, right there from that text in 1 Thessalonians, um, because the Apostle Paul uses a specific pronoun. He says, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word for, from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Paul pictured himself in that group. So I think there's a good precedent for us to, to have that hope as well. You don't pin all your hopes on it. Christ is our Lord in life and death. We understand that. But that's a glorious event. And there are lots of people, I, I would say the majority of believers in Christ do not believe in the rapture, uh, at least in our era today. But when it happens, we'll just smile and say, there you go. There it is. Phase three. Right after the second coming of Christ, Old Testament saints and deceased tribulation saints are raised from the dead. After the second coming. Now, I've, this isn't part of this talk, so I, I've skipped the idea of the great tribulation, but just to insert it in there, rapture, resurrection happens, great tribulation happens after that. I've, I've talked about that before. We've done that in other places. Seven years later, Christ returns. Old Testament saints and deceased tribulation saints are raised from the dead. And I want to show you that that happens as well as 
the book of Daniel tells us the timing as well. I'll just read this to you because it's it's pretty clear. I, I don't think there's really any question unless you have a preconceived notion. Daniel chapter 12, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. That's an angel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Meaning a time of trouble that has never been uh, replicated since. The Lord Jesus talked about this in Matthew 24 and 25. He cites the book of Daniel and he calls it the great tribulation. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. What is that? That is the restoration of Israel, saved Israel, those who have come to faith in Christ, forming the new nation. This is Christ after the great tribulation. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so we'll focus for now on those who come to life, to everlasting life. Who is this? This is God speaking to Daniel of Israel. And so the saved Old Testament saints are resurrected at that particular point. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, confirms this as well. So right after the second coming of Christ, Old Testament saints, deceased tribulation saints, are raised from the dead. Is that everybody? No. There is at least an implied phase four. And I'll tell you how we we get to this. Implied doesn't just mean I think it. It means we have steps to arrive there. The implication is that millennial saints... Those born in the millennial kingdom of Christ after the second coming and are saved will be raised um, very likely at the end. Now, some, the reason I call this implied, there is a view, which I think holds a little bit of water, that says that anybody in the millennium, because remember, the millennium starts with all saved people, but they're not all glorified. You have two groups. You have the glorified people. That's us, the church, who have returned with Christ. Revelation 19 says this. And you have the survivors, the saved survivors of the Great Tribulation. What happens to the unsaved survivors of the Great Tribulation? Matthew 25 says they'll be executed. They'll be judged. They'll be sent to Hades to await the Great White Throne Judgment, which happens at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. But so you start on earth in the kingdom of Christ with the book of Ezekiel says that Jews will be cleaning up the bodies of the dead for months. They'll be rebuilding cities. Um, Gentile kings and queens will be helping Jews return home, even children to come home to their, to their restored land. And what happens then is that those saved but non-glorified believers will keep marrying and having children. And those children, again, will be little sinners. How do we know this? Because at the end of the thousand years, Revelation 20 says that a great rebellion will arise. That can only happen when sinners are in the world. But of course, what's going to be happening in a world uh, ruled by Christ and ruled by all the, the citizens of heaven, all the church, it will be a Christian society. People will be coming to faith in Christ left and right, left and right. There is a line of thinking that says that anybody who comes to faith in Christ during that time is instantly glorified and goes into the context, it goes into the category of the glorified, resurrected, eternal body believer. That's a wonderful idea. I don't see it anywhere in scripture. It, it makes sense, but I don't see a verse that says that. What makes more sense is that God is a God who allows the consequences of sin to happen, and that is death, and then ultimately they're raised. And so if a person is saved in the millennium and then they die, then they'll be raised. And so the implication is that would be at the end of the millennium and, and there isn't really another time that would make sense. So we get a little bit foggy there and at that point you'll know anyway. So we can, we can all have a grand reunion and say, yep, Steve, you're wrong on the phase four thing there, whatever. What's the most important thing for you? Be ready for phase one, Right? That's the most important thing for you. We, we can all have our eschatology corrected as we go. Just be ready for phase one. Well, what do you get as a result of glorification? Well, let's look at the results. You get a glorified physical bodily existence. 
This is a direct contradiction of Greek Platonic philosophy, which is still very prevalent in the church today. Randy Alcorn coined a term called Christoplatonism, meaning Christianized pagan Platonism, uh, Platonic philosophy, which basically says that the body is something to be discarded and you're happy to get rid of it so that you can simply be in the spirit. That, that's Platonism. That's not Christianity. What is Christianity? Christianity is a return to the Garden of Eden. Did Adam and Eve float around as ethereal ghosts? No, they had physical bodies. I would say they were epic bodies, most likely. What salvation is, is being glorified to return to God's original intent. Will you be you in the kingdom? Yes, you will. The perfected, glorified version of you. And those who know you will know you as such. Matthew 17 proves this. How, were, how did Peter, James, and John know uh, Elijah and Moses? We're not told, but the important part is that they did. Which has an implication, by the way. The implication is that it's reasonable to assume that you will know by name, by face, every single believer in the kingdom. That's kind of cool. And that makes sense as we are the body of Christ. So rather than wasting a thousand years being introduced to a bunch of people, you already know them. And you get to know them even better, I'm certain. And what will be your instinct? What was the instinct of Peter, James, and John? Hey, let's go camping. Let's erect some tents and let's hang out together. And Jesus said, it's not time to do that yet. But you will have a glorified, physical, bodily existence. And that is so important because to discard the body is to say God could not redeem his creation. Romans 8.23 says the opposite. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. I remember reading about groaning inwardly as a child. I didn't understand that. The older I get, oh, I get it. Groaning inwardly. And by the time you come to the end of life, your groaning is, is at a fever pitch and now you have no desire to be here whatsoever. And when somebody says, do you know you're about to get a new body? You say, yes, anytime now. That's why, that's why a Christian at the end of life is, is so exuberant. Do you know what it is to stand next to somebody in a hospital bed who can't speak and who can, who can hardly uh, open their eyes and, and you hold her hand and you say, you know that you're, you're going to get a new body in maybe in minutes and to have her grip it so tight like, like if she could, she could be doing you know, the fist pumping. That's the doctrine of glorification. And I don't think anybody would deny that God wants to go back to what he originally created. If you deny it, it means you're coming under some uh, philosophical, theological system that isn't scriptural. You'll also be perfected morally and spiritually. This is the intersection of glorification and perfected or ultimate sanctification. Those two come together. Sylvia and I like to joke that, you know, Jesus said in heaven you won't, be, you won't marry or be given in marriage. That's a whole other topic for another day. You won't need marriage. Uh, but the irony is, is that now that we won't be married, we'll finally really, really, really be perfect around each other. I, I will say this, if your spouse is your best friend in this life, probably will be in the next life as well. It's not like you're going to be separated at all. But you're perfect morally, you're perfect spiritually. Colossians 1, 22, Jude 24. I love the promise in Jude 24, which is really all about keeping your salvation and the Lord keeping it. The Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You are positionally blameless right now. That's imputed righteousness. That's justification. But to be presented blameless means that you're sinless. Can you imagine that? I think it's easier for us to imagine other people as being sinless than ourselves because that's what we get most excited about. But be excited about your own sinlessness, perfected morally and spiritually. You will do the right thing every time, forever and ever and ever. You will have fullness of knowledge. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. this is stunning. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 
Now, I want to be very clear, this doesn't imply sovereign knowledge and it doesn't imply the end of learning. You will be a learner, you will be a disciple of the Lord forever and ever. Because if God is infinite and He is forever and He is eternal, you can't ever catch up to that. That would make you God. So that, that can't happen. Uh, Psalm 1611, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The best article I ever uh, read on that verse intersects pleasure and learning. What is our greatest pleasure? Our greatest pleasure is to know of God. This is one of the reasons I'm a preacher. Because when I tell you something from the Bible that I know you've never heard before, I see your faces light up. Because that's pleasure. Every single day for all of eternity, you will learn something new about God. And yet you'll have full knowledge. What does that look like? I I don't know, but it'll be natural. It'll be normal to us. There will be no more mysteries. Uh, How about this one? Every question about your life will be answered and make sense. Every question when you said, Lord, I, I, I trust you and I understand that I'm suffering under the providence of God, and I I get that. I just, boy, I'd love to get some insight. I believe with all of my heart, when you know fully, as you are fully known, and you can look back on your life, you will have the most incredible aha experience, and you will praise God for his wisdom in, in cramming suffering down your throat for all these years, for this reason and that. And when you see the whole picture, your jaw will hit the floor of heaven, and you'll say, oh, and you will worship God for his wisdom. You know what contentment is? Contentment is doing that now before you have those answers. That's, that's Christian contentment. Fullness of knowledge. Fullness of knowledge. I have so many questions for the Lord. I have questions for Paul. I have questions for Peter. I know I'll have to get in line, but we have forever, so that'll be fine. I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'll be curious when I get to talk to Moses whether I preach the Pentateuch right or not. I mean, he wrote it and Sure, there'll be some correctives there, but that's fine. I hope you're looking forward to fullness of knowledge because one of the things that causes discontentment and causes angst is lack of what? Lack of knowledge. Either you don't know the word or you don't know your circumstances and you definitely don't know how they intersect with each other. And so uh, what, what has contemporary Christianity tried to put in place of knowledge? Sentiment and emotion. That's why you pack out churches with emotional music that gets you feeling a certain way and you kind of feel good, but it's, it's a high. It's not real. Instead, we pack our minds with knowledge as much as we can and it'll all be put together. I want you to think of your mind in Christ as a million-piece jigsaw puzzle. And every week you're in the Word and every Sunday you're here listening and you're trying to put as many of those pieces as you can, but you'll never get to all of them. But you're getting a bigger and bigger picture of God, a bigger and bigger picture of His his redemptive plan, of redemptive history. When you get to heaven, all those pieces, you can picture it because you've seen movies, come fluttering in and they're there. And you have that jaw-dropping aha moment, which probably will go on for all eternity. So fullness of knowledge, glorification, your mind exploding with understanding and it feeling natural to you. Why is it that the Apostle Peter, when you read about him in the Gospels, you just kind of say, man, the Lord was scraping the bottom of the barrel here. This guy is born with his foot in his mouth and he's just just difficult. And you go, wow, God really does use the least to do the most. And then on the day of Pentecost, he preaches a sermon, his first one, with the Holy Spirit residing in him, even as a sinner, and he preaches a sermon that saves 3,000 people. He quotes perfectly from the book of Joel. He quotes from Psalm 16. He quotes from Psalm 110. And this guy nails it. Why is that? Because something happened in his mind through the Spirit. Multiply that times infinity, and that's what happens to you at your glorification. It'll be phenomenal. Which is why you won't need my services as a preacher anymore. And I can go to woodworking, which would be great. And, oh, this is even better. You will participate in the renewal of the creation. You'll be there. The world itself is experiencing decay caused by the entrance of sin. But that's going to change. Yes, it's experiencing decay. There's two facets to this. The first one is, 
environmentalists are, are so hopeless, so hopeless. They, they think they're going to save the world because you used, a, you used a cloth bag instead of a plastic one. They're not going to save the world. The other side of that, though, is that uh, Genesis 9, the Lord promises that there will be times and days and seasons until he says so. So we're, neither are we going to kill the world. But we, we know there's decay, right? If you don't think there's decay in the world, leave a car out for 10 years and see what happens. If you don't think there's decay in the world, look in the mirror. We're all decaying. If you're, anybody here 18 years old in this room? Anybody here 17? There's an 18, 17. Who's 17? All right. Anybody 16? All right. You've got one, two, or zero years to enjoy not decaying. That's it. After that, we decay. But do you, do you realize you will live in a world that is devoid of anything decaying? How is that? that it's something we can't even picture. Romans 8, 19 through 23. No decay. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This is, this is what's called a personification. Uh, Paul says creation is like a person waiting to be renewed. And what is creation waiting for? The revealing of glorified believers. Because when glorified believers are here, it means creation has been renewed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Let me put it this way. Every time a tree dies or a skunk gets run over by your car, they, they rightfully, theologically can blame you. Because things are dying in the world because of mankind. They didn't do it. The trees that die, that wasn't their fault. They don't need to be redeemed. They need to be, uh, they need to be restored. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You ever hear somebody say, well, the life and death cycle is very natural. No, it's, it's totally unnatural. It is not natural to plant a tree and harvest from it for 20 or 25 years and then cut it down and put new ones in there. What is natural is to plant a tree and harvest from it forever. That's what's natural. So, you participate in the renewal of creation. I, I would urge you to read Revelation 21 and 22 10 times a year. Read it once a month. And just know that you're going to be there. Okay, so what does it do for us today? I know we've talked about the future. What is the, uh, what's the implication? Let's see here. Jimmy, if you could uh, do that next slide for me. Implications of the doctrine of glorification. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 tells us our motivation. Has one of my favorite words. We've named a whole conference after it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. How is it that we work hard for the Lord knowing that our labor is not in vain? Because of what comes before it. What comes before it is Paul's toward death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? That's a victory dance over death. So it motivates us today. Because you know you're going to be glorified, let me, let me use a, forgive me for being a male, but I'm going to use a sports analogy. When I was a kid, I wanted to play in the major league baseball league so badly. That's all I wanted to do. And I thought I was going to do that until I found out I'm not gifted whatsoever in that realm. But little boys from the age of 8 to 48 still lay in bed dreaming of coming up to bat, bottom of the ninth, three and two, bases loaded, behind by three, and hitting that grand slam out of the park. We just think about those things. What would make you live your life that way, knowing you're going to hit it out of the park every time? It would motivate you to live now as if the victory is already there. It gives you a, can I put it this way, a Christian swagger? a Christian confidence that doesn't matter what happens. And so what what does Paul say? Be steadfast, be immovable, abound in the work of the Lord. Doesn't matter what happens, abound. 
It also tells us we can rest assured that the evils, the trials, and the tribulations that we face, they will come to an end, and we will experience an existence without those things. I've preached sermons on this. I've written parts of books on what theologians call the problem of evil. The problem of evil basically says if God is good, if God is all-powerful, and if God is all-knowing, then why do evil things happen? I don't have to answer that question because the doctrine of glorification answers it for me. They'll all be taken away. The answer to that question is you are evil and God is all-knowing about your sin and he's all-powerful enough to judge you for all the time for your sin, so you need to repent and come to faith in Christ so that he'll remove sin from you and remove you from an evil world. That's the answer to the problem of evil. And so glorification answers that question. We also have confidence in, in the fact that a day is coming when we won't struggle with sin, when we'll obey God perfectly. I think that's so important because when I talk to uh, believers now about their sanctification here, I get a lot of hopelessness. I just can't do it. I can't do it. Well, you will do it, which means you can. It is possible. So start now and start living what you believe. And so it gives us confidence. And one more implication. We can rejoice in the fact that we will experience fully relationships with God and loved ones who know Jesus. Matthew 8, Luke 22, Revelation 19 speaks of this as a banquet, speaks of it as a holiday. So the implications are, are huge. One of the hard parts about living in this world and the New Testament addresses this repeatedly is that relationships don't always work right, do they? I won't ask you to raise your hand because it would be all of you. But how many of you have a relationship with a family member or a very close person that has gone south and it is not what it used to be? Not in heaven. In heaven, all is restored and all is right. I don't know if the Lord's going to knock our heads together. Some, Some believers believe that the tears he's wiping away from your eyes are the last ones he causes. I don't see that in scripture. But in any case... What a glorious thing. I know, I know families who have had a death in the family with unresolved issues. That'll tear your soul out. But in glory, it'll be resolved. So, well, that's the doctrine of glorification. I only had two pages of notes, and so I just wanted to talk to you from my heart. Can I give you one more thing? The doctrine of glorification in the Old Testament in Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. I'm going to turn to it because I... I want to make sure I get it right. This is an ancient man, probably living around the same time as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Wow, that's the doctrine of the return of Christ bodily. That's the doctrine of my resurrection. That's the doctrine of glorification in two verses from a man who lived 4,000 years ago. So let's have that same hope, amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, this time to talk about our future. What a glorious hope we have. Only the Christian can literally, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15, mock death. Make fun of it. Do a victory dance around it. Because when we're glorified, this light momentary affliction will be nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your promises. I pray that every person here would apply them to their lives and live in light of glorification. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening.